1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, one of the hosts on the channel. Today, I'm very pleased to say that we have Val Kivelson and Ron Suni on the show, and we'll be talking about their terrific book, Russia's Empires. Ron and Val and I have been going back and forth for a long time trying to set up this interview, so I'm very pleased to do it. I've known them for a very long time, and I respect them very much as scholars and friends, and so it's very, very nice for me to have them on the show. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Marshall. Glad to be here. We traditionally begin these interviews by asking the guests to say a few words about themselves. So, Val, could you begin and tell us exactly who you are?
0: Yes, I'm Valerie Kivelson. I'm a professor at the University of Michigan, and my specialty is early modern Russia, particularly, I guess, the history of cartography and um, visuality, and also the history of witchcraft.
2: Ron? I do the other part of Russian history. I do more modern history, mostly the Soviet period. And in the 50 years that I've been teaching, uh, it's an, an extra 50 years of history has come about, right? <laughs> <That's> so <true. laughs> I started teaching when uh, Brezhnev and Kosygin were in power, and now it's Putin. So the course gets longer, the semester stays the same.
1: Yeah, that's that's very funny. You mentioned that because I'm now of an age where I go into the classroom and I say something about, let's say, the Vietnam War, and these students look at me like, "What's that?" <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it is true that that uh, actually history unfolds right before you. You get you you become old enough, and it actually there it is. You can see it happening. So let me turn directly to the book and ask you guys this. And Val, you can respond first. Why did you write this book?
0: So uh, it has a long and to us interesting backstory, which is that Ron and I have been um, friends and colleagues for uh, almost 30 years. And since, since we started talking, we've been talking about the issue of nationalism and whether nationalism is really a modern construct or whether they're... Flashes, formations, affiliations uh, before, say, 1789 that, that could be thought of in the, same, in the same terms. And this has been an ongoing debate between us. Um, and at some point, I think the idea of empire occurred to us as a way to think through this problem across time. And uh, as we say in our book, it was, we developed the ideas and worked through them uh, in our teaching. We were, we've been lucky enough to teach together three times, I guess. And those were sort of laboratories for our thinking.
2: Mm -hmm. Ron? That was really well put. Yes. Uh, Val and I are really good interlocutors, I think, because she keeps me honest in a way. That is, I spent 11 years in the political science department at the University of Chicago. And in political science, some of the complexity, contradictions, anomalies of history get lost as people try to seek a kind of parsimonious explanation of everything. And uh, so between that instinct on my part and Val's appreciation of the deep textures uh, of history... We began to explore what we love, both of us love, which is this long history of Russia from two different ends, right? She from the earliest periods, I from the more recent periods. And the one concept that seemed to be able to not only describe, and this is very important, but explain the dynamics, the limitations of possibility of uh, Russia in various phases, seemed to be empire interesting thing is that empire does not apply to all the periods of Russia. So we started with the earliest times, sort of the primeval ooze and Kiev and so forth. We discussed whether this was a state, not an empire, when it becomes an empire. Uh, what about Russia today? Is empire the right thing to capture the complexities of the present? And so this concept seemed extraordinarily fruitful without being a hard and fixed kind of uh, frame that everything had to fit into. Before we
1: uh, embark on a discussion of Empire as a framework, which is really what makes the book distinctive, there's a, there's a part of the introduction which reminded me of a 7-Up, the beverage 7-Up. Do people still drink 7-Up? I don't know if they do, but a 7-Up ad campaign from the 70s, which said 7-Up was the uncola. Do you remember that? You guys are all going to remember the uncola. cola Well, you call this a, you don't say it's an un but you say it's a non-textbook. Can you explain that? <laughs> Val, go ahead.
0: Okay. Well, uh, we conceived of this as a short analytical essay, and it turned into a long analytical essay. Although somebody, a friend of ours, just wrote to us and said, it reads like an essay. So we were very happy about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we did not want it to be a sort of turgid listing of this fact and that fact, and we didn't feel obligated to cover everything uh, because we wanted to do a thematic analysis that would um, touch on issues of importance, whether they fit or didn't fit in our in our uh, analytical rubric, uh, but not to to present this as the definitive history of Russia with all its facts and figures.
2: hmm Ron? Yeah, well, in fact, yeah, I think the, the obligation of a textbook is what they call coverage, right? And then the politics of this period and the culture, the economics, we're not doing that at all. Um, the, the obligation here was to try to explain why Russia succeeds at certain points, let's say in the late 18th century, uh, and why it, it meets uh colossal problems in the middle of the 19th century and then obviously in the 20th century at several different conjunctures 1917 uh, 1930s and 1941-45 1991 and even at the present moment and Empire seemed to be the thing that that would allow that to happen and it i've written a textbook the soviet experiment and we don't have we don't have in the textbook footnotes. This is a book that has footnotes, uses those as uh, I think judiciously. Uh, and also the textbook I was told by my editor at Oxford, no historiography. We just want, <laughs> just want the facts. Sort of like dragnet. Yeah, and here right. we did the opposite. We wanted to discuss uh, the, what different historians are writing about these things and contend with other formulations. So, uh, empire was a way to to we weave, weave our way through that morass of different interpretations,
1: so if we were in a political science department, I suppose we would start by arguing about what an empire is. I think that's the wrong way to look at it, to be honest with you, because I remember something that I was taught in graduate school um this was actually during the nineties or late eighties, I guess I heard this and some wit said, an empire is a government that you don't like. (laughs) And I thought, that's kind of right. So you don't find any big states that aren't kind of imperial in some minimal way. But we do have to talk about what an empire is. So – and you have a very, I I think, intelligent, almost inductive, I would call it – it's not exactly a definition because it changes over time of what an empire is. But what what exactly distinguishes an empire from, let's say, a nation state or a city state or – these things aren't immediately obvious. so could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, um, Ron and I were just talking about this before our conversation. Uh, I think you're I think you're generally right that that the label is applied to states we don't like, although in the last maybe fifteen years in scholarship empires have 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 had a made a big comeback that people are sort of um, seeing the positive side of empire, which is is kind of an interesting turn in itself. But what we tried to do was think about empire as a very precise term, not just uh, a label that can be slapped onto anything. Very precise, but with multiple facets. So there's an imperial position that's power claiming, claiming to be the sole power in a space. Um, And then there's empire that works through difference, through differential rights systems and and piecemeal. And there's an empire that is constituted of separate freestanding parts. And we acknowledge all of those and try to identify when one aspect of imperial behavior is coming to the fore and when another. Um, so that that would be um part of part of the answer in terms of comparing, well maybe I'll let Ron answer about nation because that's really his his terrain.
2: The you know one of the contrasts that we try to make is, and these remember, this is these are ideal types that I'm going to talk about. The ideal type of empire, as Val was mentioning, is – and we're talking about contiguous states, uh, contiguous territorial entities as imperial states. In such states, uh, the major characteristics that make it imperial are, first of all, uh, legal, in the law, differentiations, differences, the acceptance And even the promotion and reproduction of difference—difference between social groups, classes, estates, uh, and ethnicities—between ruling institutions and subordinate peoples. Difference, and secondly, hierarchy—that is, empires are inegalitarian. There are some people who, by virtue of their difference and conceived superiority, have the right to rule over others. Therefore, if in fact. Uh, the difference and the superiority of some gives you the right to rule over others, those differences have to be maintained. And the kinds of uh, homogenization and egalitarianism implied in the ideal type of the nation and the nation-state are anathema to empires, and they contradict and they they undermine each other. One of the things we found, though, was that imperial states maintaining difference, hierarchies, etc., often engage, for bureaucratic reasons, for whatever, for efficiencies, uh, in homogenization of some kind. Maybe it's at the bureaucratic level. Maybe at a certain point the Russians tried to Russify. That doesn't seem to work rather well. Uh, So there's there's a kind of nationalizing uh, um, efforts even in empires. And we found in so-called nation states, with all of this their purported egalitarianism of citizenship rather than subjecthood, their imperial tendencies, their differentiation. Some people have different kinds of rights than others. So we don't, we have ideal types in a way, but we sort of very, de- I think, deftly and carefully try to show that these are not fixed and they don't they don't appear anywhere so clearly in real history. I, I guess
1: I would say, I just would be interested to hear what you think about this, that the idea of empire that you just well enunciated really doesn't appear until you have the idea of the nation or the nation state. Because pretty much every polity that we know of, and I know there are some people that think like the Davidic monarchy out of the Old Testament or something was a nation state, but maybe, maybe not. But pretty much every polity we can recognize prior to, let's just take an arbitrary date like 1789, was an empire in some sense. That is, there was a majority population, sometimes it was minority, usually majority population that ruled over a number of different sort of distinct or not quite distinct ethnic groups. And this was just what was normal. This this was just called power. I mean, it was a little bit like the way people think about monarchy. Monarchy was just, that was government. There weren't really other kinds. Of course, we're talking about the central tendency here. There are interesting things on the tails of the central tendency. So you find democracy in some places and anarchy in another. But, you know, prior to, again, modern times, every place was an empire. How do you think about that?
0: Well... (laughs) I guess um <laughs> yeah yes all everywhere was based on uh inequality and um and legal differentiation pretty much uh but but i our finding Marcus. would say that's not gonna work unless, for instance, you have an idea of the state, so our our Discussion of Kiev Rus, which, which we both found really interesting uh, to study, shows that there's, there's not a sense that any ruler wants to rise up to be the supreme power. Uh, so after conversion, for instance, the Rus, the medieval uh, people of the East Slavic lands, are subordinate to Constantinople religiously. And religion is the the um, or one of the legitimating factors for rule at all in this period so they're already subordinate they can't make a claim to imperial sovereignty and no one dreams of it in this mm-hmm. period so so it's profoundly mm-hmm. non imperial even though it lives in a world shaped by empire it knows the Byzantine mm-hmm. Imperial structures. Later, it will it will know the Mongol imperial structures, but it can't make any kind of claim toward that status.
2: Ron, yeah, I
0: I agree with that
2: completely. And but, Marshall, your point is 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 a good one in the sense that most of the ancien regime regimes, <laughs> in fact, had these differentiations and inequalities and so forth, and were not usually. About homogenization. Now, when you get into the early modern period, uh, you know, with the, when you have the Reformation and so forth, then you start to find the, the proto-national tendencies of religious conformity. So, there is going to be some states because of the prince so that will be Protestant; and others will be Catholic, etc. And and you already then can see things that are going to develop into uh, the idea of national identity. Uh, uh, consistent with territory and state etc but um there's something new that happens though there are clearly antecedents to it and this was one of the problems we struggled with what are we going to call what looks like national identity before nationalism right uh, but there's clearly something the difference that happens in the late 18th and then certainly in the 19th century when a new discourse the discourse of the nation becomes more and more powerful over time becomes until it's it's absolutely hegemonic and a real threat to the older forms of polity, ancien regime, imperial polities. Uh, So that contrast is there, but we didn't want to make it very simple that it's simply inevitable that empires fall. Empires don't give up, and they last far longer. You know, we call 19th century or 20th century Age of Nationalism in many textbooks. But in fact, empires don't give up till well after World War II. And they certainly are not giving up. The sun is not setting on the British Empire in the interwar period. And we make, a, I think, a very convincing case, I would think that, wouldn't I, uh, that the Soviet Union is an empire. And we've gotten a lot of pushback on that. There are many of my friends, often on the left, who don't like that idea, <laughs> that we we claim that, that certainly by the time of Stalin, whatever anti-imperial uh, ambitions and aspirations Lenin had, they had you know, willy-nilly, one way or another, certainly by their choices and policies, created an empire.
1: I would quite agree with that. I guess you said better than I could what I meant to say, and that is it's really only with the idea of national sovereignty as a political movement that we start to see this thing, empires, as being something not desirable. And prior to that, pretty much everybody who was anyone Thought being part of an empire was probably a pretty good thing. I can imagine that was even true in Kiev and Rus' where they thought, you know, these Byzantines, they're really powerful. If we can get in with them, that might be good. So it's it's just the modernity, the the, the odd thing is not the nation, is not the empire, it's the nation state. The nation state is a strange thing. And I would also have to point out that it's kind of a fiction because if you look, you know, at even a place like France, which is kind of ethnically homogeneous, it's not really ethnically homogeneous. And I'm also reminded of what happened in the wake of um, the Trump election. Sorry to go on for so long, but it's not entirely clear to me that the people of California don't think they're part of an empire called the United States. <laughs> you know, you really should ask them carefully about that because they're bridling against Washington's rule, you know, and then so so it's these things are not over by any means. I
2: think you're absolutely right about that. Um, but to go... Uh, i think I think Marshall you're hitting up against uh, uh, the thing you raised before that is empire we are trying to use as an analytical term, but as a as a as a popular term, it's always had valences. so you know if New York is the Empire state that was positive if the British Empire was positive, and then beginning in the early in the twentieth century with Hobson and Lenin and Wilson and so forth. It becomes also negative, right? And nobody wants to be called an empire today. They want to be called a nation state. So the balance has changed. But we're trying to use it more as an analytical term that not only describes but explains important political and social. Yeah, and I definitely think
1: it does. So let's let's start right at the beginning. You already mentioned Kievan Rus' value. You can talk about this. Is one of the things you say in the uh, I don't know if you say this directly is that essentially Kievan Norris wasn't really a state. And this is, I don't, I'm thinking of Ukrainians all over the place, thinking this is not good. <laughs> but we'll talk about Ukrainian, We'll put, we'll bracket Ukrainians for a second, okay? Not that we don't love Ukrainians because we do. But yes, talk a little bit about Kievan Rus.
0: Yes. So Kievan Rus is a shady period, shadowy period. We don't know very much about it. Uh, and it's been read through a, a lens, I think, that, presumes that if you have a place and you have princes, you have to have a state. And that that's just been applied to this period in the, in the early Middle Ages, where we have a chronicle that describes princes and their exploits. Um, but there's precious little evidence that they functioned in a state-like way, that they had a consolidated um, claim to power, that they had any monopoly on the use of violence, whether legitimate or illegitimate. But there's violence all over the place. They have no administrative institutional structure. There's no bureaucracy. There are law codes, but they don't seem to have been implemented. So, And, and there's fragmentation from the start. So our argument is there's a, there's a legend out there of the golden age of Rus' which is substantiated by the flourishing of culture, religious, artistic, and so forth, and economic. But our argument is there is there is a flourishing in this area, and it's driven as much from below by economic activity, by um, women choosing to invest in glass-bangled bracelets, which exist in the... Tens of thousands. I think there are ninety thousand of them surviving from these early years. So there, there's a a a kind of vibrancy to the society, but it's not state driven or state centered. Or, in fact, there is no Mm -hmm. state.
1: I was going to say I went on an archaeological dig once at Studia Razan, and I think I found some of those beads. (laughs) There are a lot of them. (laughs) There really were a lot of them. It's true. Um, <laughs> I went there too.
0: What a, what a yeah, great it was experience. It's
1: not, it's not, it's not really <laughs> that much of a dostigenia, you know, not much of an achievement to find a glass bead in that place. Cause they a lot That's it right. you know, it's true. Um, do you, um, I guess one of the things I wanted to mention was just, you know, Dan Kaiser's book about the law in early Rus sort of supports what you say here, because one of the things, if you look at the earliest redactions of the Ruskaya Pravda and the proto-Ruskaya Pravda is that they didn't really have courts. You know, when people uh, got in, basically, um, when they stole from, you know, they basically, uh, they were told to deal with it themselves. I mean, there were some mechanisms to do that, but there was no third party that was going to come do anything. So, you know. That's
0: right. He introduces the the dyadic I didn't want to
1: mention the terminology for it, but yeah, but essentially they didn't have courts. And basically when you had a dispute with your neighbor, the law said, work it out. <laughs> right. <laughs> we can't be busied with that. We're busied with uh making and trading glass beads, because that's probably more valuable. <laughs> it's certainly a lot less bloody, I think, than you know, bothering with people's uh, you know, um conflicts. So then the I guess we can move on then to the um very quickly to the Muscovite period. Now that was an empire. So do you want to continue to talk about that valve because it's your wheelhouse or bailiwick?
0: Sure. So so Yes, I think uh I think it's a pretty easy claim to make that at least from uh 1547 when Ivan the IV, 4th Ivan the Terrible takes the title of tsar which is the Russian translation of emperor they are self-consciously uh casting tsarist rule as imperial rule and that's bolstered by their conquest of Kazan and Astrakhan these two um, uh, independent khanates on the Volga that bring in a Turkic Muslim population under fully constituted polities under under Muscovite rule, but but even in Muscovy, I would say there's a there's a strain that kind of foreshadows the nation in that. Uh, the center develops a uh, um, mythology to legitimize its rule. And that mythology rests on the divine choice and piety of the ruler and his ability, his willingness to answer the needs of his people. So there's a kind of reciprocity built in from the start that the czar is emperor but he will listen to the complaints and the needs of his people, and that gives a sense of not national sovereignty resting in the people, of course, but of a claim to political inclusion. And
2: that's a very important, I think, uh, contribution of this particular book as well. And I credit Val for this initially. This idea, uh, this idea of reciprocity in you know political science one hundred and one you learn the difference between violence and power at one end and legitimate power or what they call authority at the other. And states would love to move and rulers would love to move from the naked idea that they need to terrorize and uh, have a policeman on every corner to having people internalize ideas that these guys at the top have the right to rule. Uh, But that can never be achieved simply by violence or terror alone, not for very long anyway. Uh, so Ivan is a kind of important figure here, anomalous maybe. There are periods in Peter's, the greats rule, which are pretty horrific in that sense, or later under Stalin. But in general, uh, the people have to get something out of this. There has to be what we call reciprocity. That is, uh, And Val does this from her very first book, Autocracy in the Provinces. That is, there are ways in which people can petition, they get some solace, they get some uh, uh, rewards or protections or whatever. Val can talk about this better than I can, but it seems to me this works all the way through and even in as disastrous and hard a period as Stalinism, there's a sense that people are getting something, that they there are some kind of social contractual relationships. Uh, they They participate. And, and in fact, the regime thinks they need to be institutions, uh, false or, or true, of participation like elections, celebrations, uh, campaigns, demonstrations, et cetera. Well, I would agree with all of that.
1: But no, I would agree with all of that. Um, no, I'd absolutely agree with all of that. I, I do think it's very important to point out, though, that uh, this was the only political culture that they ever knew because the place was very closed off. I mean, essentially, Unlike, let's say, Western or Central Europe, where there were a kind of flourishing of different political ideas and there were even different political forms, this was the only thing these people knew. And essentially, it was like, again, I hate to, to point back to the Old Testament, but it really was the Davidic monarchy. You know, it really was, you know, this is person appointed by God, and that's pretty much the story. And I would no know if I'd call it reciprocity. Well, I guess I would call it reciprocity, but I think the point is, is that I don't think autocracy was imposed from above, I think it was adopted from below. I think that essentially these people thought that this was the only legitimate. Not only was it the only legitimate form of rule, but it was the only form of rule. There just weren't any other choices. This was it, and and you know that's a po- a very powerful thing, because they did uh, lend a certain amount of legit, all in fact, an incredible amount of legitimacy to to the autocratic form of government. And how that happened is a great mystery. I, I really don't know because autocracy wasn't particularly an idea that was. Very important in Kiev and Rus, or even in the interim the appanage period I, I don't really know how that worked, but by the Muscovite period, it certainly was the way in which the universe was structured. It was like this Thoughts?
0: well, I guess first i would i would um I would share your your uh sense that uh that there's a a powerful buy in to the system in Muscovy. Although it's important to remember how many forms of rebellion there are as well. There are major rebellions that nearly topple the regime repeatedly in the 17th century um, and in the early 18th century. In the uh, 16th century, there are powerful movements of people who vote with their feet and just leave. So... um, so I don't think everything's quite as smooth and consensual as, as um, that picture might present. Also, I, I don't think they're as shut off as, as um, you're positing. I just read a, an extraordinary book by, I, know, I think her name is Kozlovskaya, but I, I'm not sure, on West, accounts of the West in Muscovite sources. And it's a it's a pretty impressive catalog from the 15th century on of um, people, Russians who go to the West and send back reports about everything from uh, roads and water systems to political and religious formations. And they're they're actually reported amazingly, even handedly. Uh, I was really startled by this book. They certainly know the Polish system and by the 16th century have great disdain for the electoral politics of the West, of of Poland. Uh, They also know uh, the Mongol model uh, and an earlier historiography, I think, uh, felt that all of the brutality that comes into Muscovite rule came from looking at that model that hasn't held up very well um, and in fact as you know, Don Ostrowski argues that one of the things they import from the Mongols is uh, a conciliar model where the czar doesn't rule alone, he rules in council, in, in um, discussion and coordination with his elites so, there's a buy in in that way from the elites who matter a lot in, in stabilizing a system.
2: You, know I, I, you yeah. know, I would add to that. That is, there are two things. That I would say it's more a contest between those forces, often from the top, who would like to close off Russia. If you think of, uh, of Stalin, for instance, or even earlier rulers, and those, who, uh, those possibilities of access to knowledge, et cetera. Uh, I was very surprised, for instance, for a very long finding out how much news, I do a lot of work on the Caucasus, uh, and knowledge of the West uh, already existed almost immediately in the Caucasus, in this far off provincial area. There were there were channels of, of information that seemed to pass through. So I would say it's more a contest. And secondly, we very much avoided the idea uh, of any kind of fixed uh or essential national character. Uh and we were uh, the book is in some ways and much of our work both of us is directed against the no- notion that Russians are this way, looking for a single explanation Russians are people who love slavery or who need strong leaders as if Americans don't want strong leaders, right? Um and uh who uh, are subject to to uh you know violence at certain points, or are, uh, another cliche would be that they're actually very passive and accepting of authority. all of those kinds of things I think are belied by the complexities and as val put it, the contradictions and uh, of 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 a of a of a people who repeatedly rebelled against these kinds of authorities you know there's there's an authoritarian regime in Russia today, not as authoritarian or totalitarian as Masha Gessen and and other uh russophobes might think. But still, uh, there is that. Uh, And at the same time, these are people who three or four times in the 20th century made revolutions, tried to create, you know, radically democratic regimes. And then elites sort of made other kinds of decisions and, and moved in a different direction. Are we to blame Russian people or the particular kinds of rational choices that leaders made to enrich themselves and maintain their power. Let's move on past the Muscovite, or not past the Muscovite period, but right to empire.
1: You know, there was an older historiography, largely Polish, for reasons I think we've already explained, um, says the Muscovites essentially went on a great imperial tear. Um, And then after Peter, well, Peter too, but essentially what they did was they just uh, tried to expand right? They they went and they conquered a bunch of people. And it is true if you had a list in your book, they do conquer a bunch of people and a bunch of places. Like I'm thinking of like this sort of uh, movement across the steppe that took 200 years and Catherine and, you know, annexation of Central Asia and all these other things. Uh, what do you guys say about these things?
2: It's true. I mean, <laughs> you know, there, there, uh, there are, are estimates, I, I don't have at them my fingertips, of how many miles they actually conquered each year. And and, uh, until they Richard Helly probably did that calculation probably so blessed memory Richard Helly and there are reasons for that we you know first the expansion I think we said somewhere in the book they they're running after fuzzy animals and they take up more and more area and it's fairly empty and they conquer the local peoples etc then the very geography of the place without a lot of natural uh, hindrances to movement not only. Makes it easier for them to move, but also makes other people, Mongols or, or Poles or Germans or Tutans or uh, Turks or whatever, to come in. So there's a whole dynamic and, and, and different periods. You have to explain imperialism, that kind of expansion, in, in different ways. I just want to note that when you really think about it, in the 20th century, Russia doesn't grow. There are certain periods of growth, it shrinks. It mm-hmm. keeps loose Fair territory. Enough. And it's smaller right. today than ever. And had yep. the Bolsheviks uh, you know, at one point the Bolsheviks around nineteen nineteen, nineteen twenty, had only were only holding the territory of essentially Muscovy. Uh and later mm-hmm. they, of course, managed to win the civil war and take over a larger empire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Val?
1: Muscovite imperialism?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, that's why it fits it the label that. so nicely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think the only the only sort of friendly amendment <laughs> I would add is it's hard to see where where when if ever they develop a conscious idea that oh gee it would be nice to be an empire that spans all of Eurasia. It like. Everything about empire, I think, happens piecemeal, that their opportunities or their defensive needs or their perceived reasons uh, to go into a place. So it's not, I think, a part of a grand imperial vision most of the time. Uh, Central Asia, perhaps. (laughs) Um, But again, it's not a consistent uh, Russian plan to take the
1: Not until the 20th century, but we'll get to the Bolsheviks later. (laughs) Hold on. No, I I would quite agree with that. You know, and and for Americans that want to think about these things, you know, uh, some Europeans on the east coast of the United States took over an entire continent or almost entire continent. I'm sorry about that, Canadians and Mexicans in what is a, you know, a 200 year period. So (laughs) it's not as if this stuff doesn't happen very often. Also, I would say, you know, for people who think Russia is really very different in this way, this was sort of standard operating procedure for places like Russia at the time. It's just what people who ran those places did. It was part of their identity. They tried to expand when they could. And uh, there's nothing unusual about this behavior, nothing particularly Russian. The Russians were just in an odd place because as you say, there's this huge territory that is essentially not only uninhabited, but uninhabitable
2: as far as we can tell. <laughs> um, <so. laughs> I, would, I would add one thing yeah. to that though. I mean, I, I agree both with both of you. But I would say there are moments of imperial fantasy. Uh, Paul the First—I I don't know why we call him Paul the First, since there was never a Paul the Second. But <laughs> Paul, uh, you know, thought of thought of of you know wanted to be the 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 ruler of Malta and right. and uh, campaign to India, right. etc. There was there were very frequent uh, ambitions even up through World War One and, and even Stalin uh, to sort of control the Straits, uh, you know, the Dardanelles, etc. Uh, for Perfectly interesting and important strategic reasons, perhaps. The the Caucasus frontier, which was fairly stable after 1828. Nevertheless, you know, there were times when the Russians moved into what we call historic Armenia or Eastern Anatolia. Um, and and it, that's important because w- one of the characteristics of empires that has to be remembered is that often... Borders are not very hard. They're more like frontiers that you can also cross. They're different from nation states where there are limits in terms of the nature of the population. Usually, some nation states can also be imperial, but empires uh, have a different kind of dynamic about uh, the possibility of moving beyond what, what, uh, what might, where they might have lived and where they had some kind of legitimate authority. I mean, I think that's a very good point, and we can. uh, it's not very often
1: that we get to credit Donald Trump for something, but he's brought to mind the idea of how difficult it is to control a long border. And in the case of Russia, especially pre-modern Russia, it was practically, not only practically, it was simply impossible to control a border, just impossible, flat out. You could Mm -hmm. build no wall. You could have no system of sentries. There was no way to control that border. People were coming across. (laughs) <laughs> there was nothing yeah. they could do about it.
0: Yeah um, if I could add one more thing on this on this discussion, there certainly are um, times when when there's an imperial fantasy as Ron says. but your point about the the uncontrollability of the border this the state was also aware of how tenuous its its control in border areas was mm. and uh, there's a lot of work that shows, Yeah, sometimes their response was okay. We've got to conquer this area in order to shore up our holdings. But sometimes it was the opposite. And Brian Beck shows this, for instance, with the Cossacks. That uh, the the Tsarist state was very hesitant about letting the Cossacks make trouble with the Crimeans or the Turks because they were afraid, reasonably, of provoking a war. So, so they're Mm -hmm. both responses. to that, those,
1: those fuzzy, fuzzy boundaries. I wanted to interject one point. I think it's really important. I can't believe I haven't mentioned it yet. And I think this is, I don't know whose idea this is, but I learned it from Ned Keenan of blessed memory. And that is that, uh, and you can talk about this, what, what the Russians have traditionally done when they have conquered a people. And, and, and ordinarily what they do is bring some of them to the capital and sort of set them up very nicely. So could you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, there's um, that is an imperial um, tendency. In fact, um, that is there's a kind of recognition of difference. There's the uh, the idea that if you're really going to rule a people, they also cannot just be left in the provinces. They also have to be, you know, Tatars become nobles of so, of some kind, uh, Baltic mm-hmm. Germans become important officials, uh, Armenians play a big role. I'm happy to say. In the Soviet period, et cetera you know uh, those kinds of things happen. um I wanted to uh say one more thing about uh this idea of of uh, imperialism that we, we were talking about. I don't remember Val if we actually used this phrase, but I think we did finally include it that Russia is an insecurity state that is it's it's uh, <laughs> following what you were saying, Marshall in fact um uh, it, it's, it's, because of its very size. On the one hand, Russia presents, by its very existence, a security dilemma for the rest of the world. It looks fearful. It's huge. It's the Russian, uh, you know, bulldozer or whatever. But that's one thing. On the other hand, because it's so big, it's also vulnerable. And when you actually examine, even people like Stalin, uh, they feel this vulnerability. And so ter- they'll often do terrible things like, you know, murder frontier peoples, this happened under Stalin, Mm -hmm. deport them because they want to create some kind of security in their own imagination. But it's, it's the vulnerability Mm -hmm. of Russia. If you want to understand Putin today, you should understand this is a relatively weak state that, you know, pays that, that spends about seven to 10% of what the West, the United States spends on defense uh, in a world that seems hostile to them. And these are patterns that you find Mm -hmm. in Russian history over and over again. Vulnerability insecurity
1: I, I, I think that's the prime mover of Russian history right there personally. I believe that, that's what I've said in my published work that basically the place is a yeah, is a strategic I mean from the point of view of, of defending a place, it's a disaster. You can't't pick a place that was harder to defend. Really, you couldn't. I mean, think about it. like the United States. Pretty good. It's a continent. You know, England. It's an island. Japan. It's an island. Even Korea. It's a peninsula. You know, even China. They like have these nice borders. But they built a long wall. But Russia. It's just a disaster. I mean, you don't know where do you, where do you start? <laughs> it's just too much. And 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 they feel you know like we have to. You know, essentially defend this entire thing, and 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 it's and and, you know and rightfully so. And it's not as if this is something I've also pointed out in my published work that they haven't been taken advantage of in that way. I mean, as much as you might say the Russians are bad in this way or that way, you know, as a as a Russian friend of mine once said, that in order to understand Russian history, you simply have to understand one thing: the Germans are always coming. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, I get it. I get it. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah. There right. they are again. Germans right. are always coming. So, and it's kind of true. You know, they, they have always been coming. I don't know if they're going to come again, but, you know, I can see why Putin would think about that. You know, I mean, it's funny. It's, I, I hate to editorialize, but I can't help but be bewildered when people who say, who question NATO expansion into places like Ukraine. Are called Putin apologists. This is just lunacy. I, I just don't get it. Because it, it it's just so wrong-headed. I don't know where to start. It's We're just so wrong-headed. There, you, know, you just can't. It's just like a failure of imagination. It's just a failure. Think about the way we think about Cuba. <laughs> you know, it's just so wrong. Anyway, that was just an editorial on my part. Um, yeah. So I, I just don't get it. I, re, I really don't get it at all. So anyway, let's move on a little bit um, to the point where Russians start to call their empire an empire. And that is, and, and really when it it starts the I don't want to say come apart, but they they start to have trouble with it, real trouble with it in the 19th century. Could you talk a little bit about that? Ron? Ron? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> well, yeah, you want me to century. do that?
2: Okay. yeah um, that, what's really interesting is Russia is at the beginning of that century, as you all well know, uh, one of the most powerful states in Europe. Uh, it, it is the, the power that destroyed the Napoleonic empire, one empire fighting another. Uh, Russian troops march through Paris. Uh, that has all kinds of consequences, as we know, with the, the Decembrist revolt, etc. Uh, and then it's a series of disasters that follow. They don't modernize enough. Uh, Europe reacts uh, much more rapidly to the several revolutions that have occurred the French Revolution, the possibilities of of liberalism and democracy, the Industrial Revolution, etc. And Russia, which had been certainly competitive with Europe in many ways in the 18th century, begins to fall behind. We begin to talk about this concept, which is, of course, controversial backwardness. You have the disaster of the Crimean War. You have some recovery with the, the Russo-Turkish War in the 1870s. But uh, still, uh, it's extraordinarily vulnerable. Uh, and even as it's expanding, at first into the Caucasus and then into Central Asia, it's, it's, it's then confronted by another danger. And that is what you might call and what Jack Snyder of Columbia University calls imperial overreach. That is, Tsar Nicholas and others have fantasies uh, about uh, expansion into the Far East, into China, into Korea, into the maritime areas, Uh, and that leads to the disaster uh, of 1904-5, the Russo-Japanese War, Um, the first time an Asian power in modern times defeats a major European power, to the humiliation of Russia, Um, and you know that leads to eventually all kinds of consequences that uh, uh, encourage liberals and pan-slavs to think about uh, defending Serbia and and the great tragedy of, of World War One. So, um, one interpretation would be that this is about strategy and this is about imperial uh, competition. It's also very deeply involved in the burgeoning capitalist economies, uh, which are all involved with imperial outreach in the period before World War I. And then the empire fails. It it can't, in fact, maintain its own internal structures, which are uh, fragile uh, with this kind of effort in the war uh, in 1914, 1918. Um, I'd say one more thing. There's a kind of counter history being developed. There, There are certain historians who I don't want to mention names of who are now arguing that Russia was doing very well in World War I, that the army wasn't particularly uh, rebellious. And then for reasons that uh, are largely to do with misguided politicians, liberals first, and then radical socialists later, uh, the the empire collapses. I think that's wrong. I think there were deep social and political and strategic uh, problems with Russia that led to the disaster of uh, of the, entering the war and the revolution of 1917.
1: Mm-hmm. Val, would you like to weigh in on any of that, the 19th century? Yes or no? <laughs> 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 yes, 19th century. Go ahead.
0: Well, I guess the the piece that I find uh, really interesting within that story is, is emancipation and uh, the the way in which an imperial state struggles with the inclusion and equality that's supposed to be part of a, a universal citizenship. but they can never quite get themselves to do that. Um, and so so emancipation and the great reforms are beautiful um, sort of case study in what happens as this profoundly imperial state attempts to to make the necessary changes uh, and, and can't quite do it, which, which stirs up a whole new set of problems. For I,
1: the I, I, you know, Ron mentioned this word backwardness, and I never really had a problem with it because the Russians themselves in the 19th century say they were backward. At least the more sensible ones do, because what they realized was, and this is true of all the people that loved emancipation and wanted to reform the government, is that they had carried over what is really a kind of pre-modern political and economic form well into the 19th century. They were unable to really do anything about it. And they did it kind of blithely. And then once they you know, realized in the second half of the 19th century that they were stuck with this essentially political economic form, which was just not viable – by any means in the 20th century, they, they, they did try to change it. And that's much of their credit. By then it was much too late though. And, and, and really they'd sort of let the genie out with that. And, and it did not go well. So Ron, please tell me why I'm wrong. There's always a,
2: <laughs> no, no, you're not, you're not wrong, except there's the other side to that story, right? That is, there were people always and the right to the present time who believed, no, no, we don't need to follow the West, you know, uh, so there were always the westernizers who who complained, and and maybe we would we feel closer to them, the liberal reformers, the even the socialists, who said we've got to change and we've got to be more modern and we've got to industrialize to be competitive. We can't sit on the sidelines. We're a great power. There's no sitting on the sidelines. The Germans are coming, right? So that's, that's that's one side. On the other hand, there was always a, a counter strain in Russia that no, no. The appropriate form of government here uh, is autocracy, and the kinds of restricted uh, access that we had uh, for the lower classes, and the hierarchies, and the clear social distinctions, uh, etc. So those those views are still very powerful right up to the end of the Tsarist empire, and uh, and the idea that Russia has a unique role. In the world history, in world salvation, that, of course, can be seen in the Soviet period and even today. Yeah. and, And I would say that those isolationist tendencies, Val will
1: disagree with me here, were very, very strong. In fact, they were just simply taken for granted in Muscovy and that they worked pretty well until and here I'm sort of a technological determinist. Um, not really, but, you know, until the era of the uh, telegraph and the railroad and the airplane and the car, when the distance to Moscow was just radically shrunk, as the Germans showed. Um, you could not really uh, be an isolationist if you depended simply on the size of Russia once those things were available. Unless, of course, you had an atomic bomb, <laughs> and then you could reimpose that kind of isolationist uh, uh, um uh, form of state, which is precisely what they did. So I, I, I guess, yeah. I mean, they, they got caught not being modern enough, really, and, and that—that's what happened. And, and I don't know. I would be very—if I were, if it was eighteen fifty and, and it were me—I'd be very pessimistic as well as were many uh, Russians at the time, because it, there was no way to change this thing very quickly. And they tried mightily; they did, and there were a lot of really smart people on board who did it. And but there was—it just wasn't going to happen. So let's move on. Let's move on to this. Go ahead. So, Go ahead
0: so, just a quick uh, um, observation, which is uh, in terms of the, the imperial structure being outdated and, and behind, I think it's important to remember what's going on in Africa and India in the 19th century. Um, it, you know, brutal, in, inequitable imperial rule is still alive and well around the globe. It's, it's not that Russia is lagging behind. What's different maybe is that it's practicing the same thing in its metropole. Uh, sure.
1: I mean, I, I would agree with that. It's but, just that they didn't have the luxury of being a long way off. And all of those early modern states that had structures that were essentially similar to Russia's circa you know, uh, 1600, they, they all were imperialized. I mean, Russia, they, you know, that's why I say this in print, you know, that the Russians' great achievement is surviving. <laughs> because most places yeah. like that didn't. And and even places very distant, that Russia managed to actually stay an independent state. And it was by no means clear that it would, as you guys know, for a very long period of time, and even today. Right.
2: And uh, the Russians always thought, we're better imperialists than those others. <laughs> <Right. laughs> no, no, well, they the were, British
1: kind have, of. <laughs> <look> <laughs> the British are
2: doing in, 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 yeah. in uh, India, or the Belgians in the Congo, or the French in Algeria. Uh, and we're, we're a more benign empire. I'm not sure how benign they were. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time studying the Caucasus and these so-called Karachinli you know, right. expeditions. you know, punitive when, expeditions. When Caucasians or like Georgians revolted, uh, people sent, you know, uh, people into that area to burn villages and hang. I Tolstoy
1: was one of those people, wasn't he? Didn't in, the he in, cauc- in the North
2: Caucasus, he was involved. Tolstoy in was, yeah, yeah. was, yeah, he was one of those terrorists
1: or whatever you want to call them. Um, so let's move on to the Soviet period. You guys are big fans of continuity. <laughs> <laughs> I just leave it at that. So can you talk a little bit about that? I guess, Ron, this is
2: your turn. Yeah. You, you know, I'm one of those historians who's maybe the least anti-Soviet. I will admit that openly. That is, I... Was in some ways I call myself a Marxist-Lubinist uh, after uh, Moshe Levine, yeah. Mar- Mar- Marxist-Lubinist, um, and, and my yeah, and I learned a tremendous amount of him uh, from him to appreciate the difficulties that the Russians and other Soviet peoples had in trying to uh, develop in the 20th century. Um, of course, the aspirations for a more democratic, egalitarian, uh, participatory. Regime uh, system of 1917 fails very quickly for a variety of reasons. They build a state in the context of a civil war. And in that period already, uh, the aspirations to become a non imperial state, and with uh, that Lenin had, particularly with uh, the various nationalities and developing them uh, with degree, different degrees of autonomy, that quickly dissipates once. Uh, uh, Lenin dies and Stalin moves in a different direction until you really do develop an empire. And there are sort of structural problems with trying to make that more democratic and non-imperial thing work. Russia is just so much bigger than any other country. And uh, uh, you have a single communist party. You have uh, ideas that the Bolsheviks had that this had to be a single economy, that economics would trump. Even national cultures, etc, so there are lots of things built in that that make it more likely that they're going to move in this imperial than into some more participatory democratic direction and we can we can talk about that and Val and I make a fairly strong argument that uh, however rhetorical their anti imperialism was, however uh, genuine was their support uh, outside the Soviet union for national liberation movements, anti-colonialist movements, and after all, the Soviet Union was a major force in that anti-colonial effort when most other countries were supporting empire, European imperialism. Uh, Despite all of that, they were making an empire, inegalitarian, hierarchical, based on legal definitions of of difference uh, within their own country. And that that also explains a lot of the dynamics of the Soviet Union. The fact mm-hmm. is that the, the, the Soviets, just like the French, let's say, in North Africa, had a mission civilisatrice. They had a civilizing mm-hmm. mission. This was to create, supposedly, an egalitarian socialist society of some type. And that would be based on industrialization and urbanization and what we might call more generally modernization, education of the illiterate, etc. Well, the funny thing is, uh, and I'll just, I won't, I'll just take a moment on this, uh, we argue that there was a kind of imperial dilemma here or a dilemma of empire. What if this mission of civilizing, of civilizing actually succeeds? What if you actually do create an industrial urban society of literate people who needs an empire? Who needs a vanguard party that's supposed to be superior to everyone else, telling them what to do? Maybe people can do it on their own. So in some ways, instead of a failure of this empire, it does fail in certain ways, clearly, incomplete modernization, you might say, the Soviet Union succeeds only too well in creating its own demise. That is an industrial, urban, literate population that could do without the Communist Party.
1: Hmm. Val, you way in here?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I thought that was great. And uh, that tension is something that we try to attend to, so that it, it does remain or or reconstitute itself as a as an imperial regime, but it's always struck through with these uh, egalitarian and homogenizing tendencies and at t- and those are are always um, intention throughout Soviet history. there also are periods where that other definition of Imperial seems to to come to the fore and that is you do what Moscow says uh, so it's the supreme ruler idea that takes us way back to, mm-hmm. to Rome um, that also emerges in the the Soviet kind of hybrid empire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right.
2: So sovereignty always remains with Moscow. There's some degrees of autonomy for Armenia or Georgia, but basically sovereignty remains. And remember, the Soviet Union is a double empire. It's an empire internally in its relationships with the peoples, the non-Russian peoples and the Russian population. Soviet Union is not a Russian empire. It's a communist empire. It's, It's an empire of the nomenklatura over everybody else. And then mm-hmm. there's a the second empire. They're overseas, not overseas, but outside empire. They're imperial in Eastern Europe toward Mongolia as well. Uh, and, <laughs> and and that, the Soviet bloc is also an imperial relationship, a kind of weird one, but it's certainly an imperial relationship right up till 1989. So you don't think it was a Russian empire? No, it's not a Russian empire. It's a, because mm-hmm. the Russians are also subjects of the empire. Yeah. They have some am reminded of the communist Party sure I'm reminded of this um a little bit of doggerel verse that I heard from a Russian
1: once. I'll do it in Russian and then try to translate it. Takarashua Nash ni ili ni Turkmen ni no nastayashi sayetski Yeah, that's good. Or <laughs> sayetski there means, and that means, you know, how great it is that Gagarin, he's like the guy they sent into space, uh, isn't a Chechen or a ta- Tatar or whatever it is. He's a Soviet person. But any person listening to that would understand Soviet meant Russian.
2: <laughs> well, right? that... That's important. That's important. That is they, what Val was mentioning. There are always these homogenizing tendencies and there was never a Soviet nationality. There was right. a Soviet people right. and everybody was supposed to be a member of that. And Marshall, you're perfectly right. That that Soviet thing uh, was very Russified, right? Exactly. So there was always the tension between being Armenian and being Soviet Uh and uh, or being Uzbek, Soviet, Ukrainian, Soviet, etc., uh, but that tension exists all the way through, and they never quite yeah. get it right. Yeah, that's right.
0: I, I, but but uh, they do take that sovietski narod yes. seriously, yeah. and people seriously. Anna Whittington is is working right now on this concept and it's, showing how people. Uh, embraced that identity and mobilized. It's very, it's it. very
1: funny how this recapitulates itself in, in the United States, these same sort of paradoxes and things, because you know, I, I if I would ask my Russian friends in the Soviet group even now, you know, they would say, well, we're, you know, I'm i I'm a Soviet person. They would say I'm Russian in some sense, yeah, but I'm I was raised in the Soviet Union and I'm a Soviet person. And and, and that I think they mean that really genuinely like I'm actually a, a product of this thing and I'm a Soviet person. Similarly in the United States today, it was pointed out uh, or it is often pointed out that I'm a white person. I never identified that way in my entire life. I'm an American, right? So suddenly, you know, it just that's the way I identify. I'm an American. I'm not these other things that I might be. Maybe I'm middle class, or whatever. I don't know what it is. But you know, again, that I, I can see how for Russians it was very it was hard for them to bear these two things because they were Soviet people and they were Russian people. Just like I am an American, and I'm also. White somehow. I don't know. I don't really identify as that thing, but you see what I'm saying? It's like yes. this is a constant sort of and We have these identities and we have to
2: juggle them. And yeah, and I think it's pretty difficult for that generation. And think how how that remains true in Russia today. That it is, is, yeah. After the fall, yeah. after the fall of the Soviet Union, after the collapse of the, the and the disintegration of the Soviet Union, which I happen to believe was a tragedy along with Putin, uh, after that happened, the term "savok," which means you know, dustpan, and is a negative view of Soviet, existed, and you would you could go to Kazakhstan or Armenia or Georgia, and I spent a lot of time in these places, and you'd see that these people are still Soviet in a very real way. Now, over time, that has to dissipate as the national cultures become stronger and the the Soviet Union uh, fades into the background. But still, it's amazing. How powerful that culture, which only existed 70 plus years, uh, remains in many of the non-Soviet republics. Well, and I think it's the key. I, and I don't
1: understand why people don't say this, Ron. Maybe you should write an editorial. But this is the key to understanding Putin and the way he behaves, because he is Soviet Chelovya. I mean, there's just yes. no question about no question. it. No, of course, that guy is to stern, Soviet Chelovya. He made his entire career in it. He was raised in it. He believed in it. He fought for it. He sacrificed for it. It, it you know, I mean, that's who he is. And it, you can't really understand him outside that context. Um, that's right. So, yeah, I, I really think that's true. Um. So, uh, another qu- we've run over time here, but this is so fascinating. You guys have a little more time, a little bit, yeah, <laughs> Sure. just a little bit more time. Yeah, that's that's good. So, um, th- th- there is an empire. I was going to say there is a Russian empire today. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. There is an empire there. I guess. Um, wh- where is it going to go? What's going to happen with it? Because you know these things <laughs> in modern times, over the long period of time, they tend to fall apart. And that's been the tendency since, I don't know, Napoleon, is these things get taken apart. Mm-hmm. So what
2: is going to happen with Russia? Any predictions? Well, um, for, there are two things I would say. First of all, we tried to argue that Russia is more like a nation state today than ever was in its whole history. Yes, I would agree with that. that, is, that is, <laughs> we're not yeah. saying that it doesn't have imperial tendencies, because we've tried to make the argument. That these things coexist in contradictory, intensive, and and intention-filled relationships, and none, none fit the the ideal type precisely. But in the in the long history of Russia, it's more like a nation today, uh, nation state than it's ever been. Though it's a diverse one, and there are imperial relations within it. That's one thing. Uh, secondly, and really, here I may be speaking only for myself. Val will let me know. Uh, I, I very much am worried about the sort of Russophobia, uh, that exists in the West and particularly in the United States, which is again, it's not that they're on basis for that. Obviously Russia will, every time you try to say something nice about Russia, they'll do something to make you regret that you just said something nice about them. That's happened yeah. for a lot of time. And, and in the Putin era, that's, that's happening as well. Uh, on the other hand, this kind of blanket Russophobia in which all the evils seem to come from a single place, it seems to me uh, it is again presents us with the same kinds of distortions of that complex uh, country that we've seen ever since uh, Moscovite times, if not before um, mm-hmm. Russia today, I would say, I'm going to say three things. One is an extraordinarily fragile state. So I very seriously worry Uh, what happens when Putin is gone. Putin is an extraordinarily competent authoritarian ruler. Uh, He's holding that system together. He might be tired of ruling. I don't know. But he can't leave because all those oligarchs will then fight for for the, the bits and pieces that remain. And who knows what will happen to him personally. That's one thing. Second, it remains a very vulnerable state, a relatively weak state with nuclear weapons. Uh, And its efforts in Georgia in 2008 and in Ukraine have been to shore up its weaknesses. It hasn't played these cards particularly well. By taking Crimea, it created an anti-Russian Ukraine for all time, it seems to me. Uh, But uh, it it is clearly worried about further expansion of NATO into Ukraine or Georgia and did uh, uh, maybe perhaps rash things, but some of my... Our friends, international relations friends, say perfectly rational things in trying to destabilize those countries. That's the second thing: is that is it's a relatively weak country, fragile internally, and thirdly, it sadly is moving. We were talking about how it's still somewhat Soviet, and you can. I, I said somewhere in one of my pieces, you can take Russia out of the Soviet Union, but you can't take the Soviet Union out of Russia. Uh, but it is becoming more nationalist. And it is, it, it is, it is a, a deeply conservative state. And with authoritarianism, conservatism and nationalism, it's become a kind of, I think, um, toxic influence in Europe and even in the United States with its support. I think now they might regret this support of, of Trump, but its earlier support of Trump. <laughs> Of uh, of the the the, the uh, right wing movements, which just yesterday seemed to do rather well in Italy, but in France, uh, in Hungary, in Poland, etc. So, uh, I worry about that kind of uh, toxic influence that this Putinism is having uh, in places like Turkey. I, I spend a lot of Turkey time in Turkey, where you have this guy Erdogan, who in my view is Lily Putin.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. So uh Val?
0: Yeah, I haven't spent ten years in a poli department, so I'm I'm gonna defer to Ron on the on okay. the front.
1: Well I would I, I, I say... craft but- Yeah. I just wanted to say this. Ron and I have known each other a long time, and I don't think we've ever agreed on very much. (laughs) But I'll tell you this. I agree with every single word you just said. I don't think people realize how weak Russia is. Yes, The GDP of the United States is 14 times as large as the Russian GDP. 14. It's not even in the same league. Russia is weaker today than it has ever been. I mean, like Brazil is more powerful. Russia is more weak today than it has been since – I don't know,
2: the Civil War, maybe, when the United States invaded it.
1: <laughs>
2: and uh, <laughs> Politicians like, in Washington are saying things like Russia is an existential threat to us. No, yeah. no. Oh, my God. It's just absurd. I think
1: from the point of view of the yeah. Russians. they Really, they're in a very, very bad spot. But I want to say I mean, one they, more they thing about my here. wonderful
2: yeah, yeah, colla- colleague and collaborator and best friend, Val. When I stray too far into the pro-Putin or, you know, or apologetic. Val keeps me honest and says, well, no, I'm not so sure. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 the book itself, which we've been talking about, is really an interplay between not only an early Russianist and a late Sovietist or whatever, but also between two friends and colleagues who learn from each other. And I, I wish this kind of collaboration uh, for everybody who can find a colleague like that uh, from who you constantly learn. And as I said, it keeps you honest. Yeah, no, it's great. It's a great
1: thing to have. It really it is. is. And, you know, scholarship, modern scholarship is a is a, I just wrote a book about this kind of a little bit. And, you know, modern history. people don't realize how lonely modern historical work is, really. I mean, you, you really don't. It's not like you don't get credit for a lot of collaborators. You're alone almost all the time. Yeah, you don't get credit for it. And it's hard. So kudos to you guys for doing it. I was part of a big collaborative project once. And I was not the best collaborator. (laughs) I think, I think, I think Russ, I'm sorry. Let me just say it was a great project. (laughs) Yeah, it was a good project, but Russ, I'm sorry. Um, And buddies and Olga, I'm sorry. But yeah, that was a different point in my life. But yeah, I should congratulate you guys because it's amazing to bring a thing off like this. I, you know, uh, to to produce a book like this and to have a a long career like that where you work with somebody is a truly wonderful thing. And I admit I'm a little jealous. I am. I'm a little jealous over here. Um, So let me uh, say to everyone, that we've been talking to Val Kivelson and Ron Suni about their terrific book, Russia's Empires. And let me say to everyone who listens to this podcast, thank you very much for tuning in. So uh, goodbye and thanks for being on the show, Val and Ron. Thank you, Marshall.
0: Thanks, Marshall.